welcome to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines, changing the conversation around divorce. This show is sponsored by Penguin in the Room. Penguin in the Room is an award-winning arts, marketing and social media management company. If you want to jazz up your socials and have someone Instagram and tweet for you, then here's your answer. Go to www.penguinintheroom.com. As always, hit subscribe to make sure you're updated about new episodes. And we love to hear from you on social media at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. You can also email us all the infos on our website, thedivorcesocial.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to The Divorce Social. This is series 11, my goodness me. And what a way to kick things off with the brilliant Liz Earl. Now, I've been using Liz Earl products for a long time and I bumped into Liz at a literary event and I follow her on Instagram and I sort of accosted her and really hoped she'd be divorced. Uh, Luckily for me, she is twice And um, it's not really something she's ever spoken about. So I'm very honoured that she's come on The Divorce Social to share her story. And we also talk about her new book, A Better Second Half, which is a title I love. And I feel like really suits The Divorce Social and our little community we've got going on because we're all having a better second half or, or, you know, middle third or whatever you want to call it. So enjoy this one with Liz. I am joined by brand founder and well-being guru, Liz Earle. Welcome to The Divorce Social. Oh, thank you so much. You have to promise to be gentle with me because this is a subject I've really never talked about, you know, for me personally. I'm so excited because we met and I was like, I really hope she's divorced so she can come on the podcast. (laughs) You're the first person that's ever said that to me. What a positive spin. I love it. (laughs) I know I can only be friends with divorced people now. And you're divorced twice. I am. I don't know whether that's an honour or or a shameful thing. It obviously wasn't my life intention. But yeah, that's that's how it worked out for me. Yeah, it's an honour on this podcast. You're very you're doubly welcome. I'll take it. So we met at the Comedy Women in Print Awards and I sort of accosted you and said, hello, I follow you on Instagram and you're great. 
<laughs> well, I now follow you and you're great. And it's just lovely. I mean, I love Instagram. I don't really do social media very much. I, I have never really done personal stuff. And then it was during lockdown, actually. And it just kind of felt right, that really weird time at the beginning when nobody really knew what was going on. Everyone was scared. We were all shut indoors. And I literally, I was in the kitchen cooking something and I thought, I'll, I'll just flick my camera on and have a chat and check that everyone's kind of okay. And so I did. And lots of people kind of sent nice messages. And then the next day I thought, well, you know, let's have a look and see if anybody's still there. And then they said, well, that's great. You know, you'll be back tomorrow. And so I ended up doing a live every day for I think it was 17 weeks and building this amazing community of sort of midlife women and, and connecting on a level that I would never have dreamed of before. So you know, I think social media gets a bad rap a lot of the time, but there are some real positives out there too. Especially Instagram. I think we have a really nice divorce community on Instagram. And also I love everyone on my personal Instagram. We have great chats. So it's lovely to connect with you on Instagram. It's interesting you said, because obviously you work in well-being. That's what we know you for. And on your Instagram, you do share things about your routine and, you know, what you put in your coffee in the morning. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's interesting. You said you've never really talked about your divorce. So why no. is that, do you think? Um, it's probably a step too far, you know, baby <laughs> steps. And, you know, I also think out of respect for others involved, I have become more open with sharing what I do, because hopefully it can illustrate some ideas for other people that they might find helpful without being too preachy. You know, you don't have to do it. But, you know, frankly, this is what I do and what I find helpful. So if it works for you, then great. You know, if not, then move on. Because that's me. And I think ultimately, you know, whenever you talk about relationship, whether it's with your children, your parents, your other half, whatever, you're involving them and they might not necessarily want to be involved. So, you know, it's I've always been a little bit respectful of that. But, you know, I think I can certainly share things from from my side, from my perspective. So do you want to take us back to your first divorce? Where were you in your life and the world? Well, I was very young. I actually got married the first time when I was 18. And not something I would recommend. Um, that is very it, young. It's super young. I mean, this is going back away. I've just had my 60th birthday. So this is over 40 years. And it felt right at the time. I thought I knew it all, as I think most 18-year-olds do. Um, I was quite keen to move on in my life and, you know, set up on my own, in my own way. Met a really great guy. He'd just left uni uh, we were really into each other and it felt like the right thing to do. And actually, you know, we were married for 17 years. We had two amazing children, boy and a girl, Lily, who's now 32 and, and Guy, who's 30. But obviously we changed. We were we were children and it was lucky, I guess, in a way that we lasted as long as we did. He worked very, very hard. He was working in banking. We very rarely saw each other. You know, perhaps that's why it lasted as long as it did. And I kind of got to, I suppose I was mid thirties and I was looking at friends around me who were, seemed to be living the dream. You know, they, they had great relationships, great marriages and doing lots of things together, building lives together. And that wasn't happening to me. And I felt actually, I, I do need to leave this now. You know, I, I, I need to leave it before it's too late. I don't want to be on the shelf. I'd like to find another relationship, one that is a bit more giving. Um, feels a little bit more authentic, perhaps. 
And it was a massive decision. You know, it was really, really, really hard. My parents were absolutely beyond shocked. They said, well, you know, can't you just, can't you just pretend, you know, I mean, how bad is it? And I said, well, it's not bad. It's, it's just not great. And, you know, I'd like life to be great. I think life can be great. And I'd like to try and find that. But I was obviously conscious that, you know, I was removing the father of my children and, you know, turning his world upside down and disappointing my parents. And, you know, I was doing a lot of TV back then. I was, I was, had my own show on ITV. So I was much more in the public eye. I was front page of the Daily Mail as, you know, kind of, this is the woman who thought she can have it all. And obviously she can't, you know, they were really nasty. Taught me a lot actually um, about how hideous it can be to be uh, in in the tabloid spotlight. So I I kind of try and avoid that. I've learned, I learned a few lessons early on about that. So yeah, it it wasn't great, but I felt it was the right thing to do for, for me and for my children. So what was it like hearing your parents say how bad is it can you just pretend um I felt quite invalidated to be honest I actually sent them a book which had a a girlfriend had had given me called The Road Less Travelled super famous book it's it's a brilliant book and it starts the opening line is life is difficult and the main thrust of the book is about unconditional love and how important that is and I just, I actually, I read it and then I gave my mother a copy and said, you know, this, this is all we ever want. And, you know, it would be great to feel that because it's not something I would choose. And, you know, life is hard and, you know, I need you to be there for me. Um, and and she stepped up and, and both my parents are now great. I mean, it was obviously hard telling them again. <laughs> that was not, that was not a good moment either. Trust me. <laughs> So you said, I mean, we'll we'll obviously delve into the second time as well, but mm. you, you said, you know, you're very young, 18, but it, it was a 17-year marriage. So, yes. you know, and, and children as well. What was it like kind of pulling yourself out of that? Because it's, it's all of your adulthood by that point. Yes. And uh, to be honest, I kind of wanted to find who I was. And to see what that person could be, would be. And it was a scary thing, you know, never having been on my own. You know, I had never left home and lived as a student, as a young adult, you know, hanging out with my girlfriends, flat sharing, traveling, all of that. I I literally went from college to, to being married and going straight into work. So that was a great unknown and a very unusual thing, I guess, in your sort of mid to late 30s to be suddenly navigating that whole space and think about dating and and but at the same time think about career and childcare and all the other things that, you know, don't usually go alongside that. So it was quite a confusing time, I think. I, I, I felt quite isolated by that because all my friends were married. They were all kind of loved up and living the dream with young families. And and I was, you know, not only the first one to get married in my group, but but the first one to get divorced. I'm the first to get divorced too. Mm. <laughs> but then you become the divorced guru. Did you, yes. <laughs> do you have you had a lot of people asking you about divorce over the years or advice? Yes, I think over over the years, I think one of the things that I do say to girlfriends is please don't stay with somebody simply because you are scared of being alone. I think there is a lot of that. And, you know, particularly for women, maybe, you know, we feel that we have validation if we're, you know, somebody's other half officially, you know, we have a ring on our finger and we can talk about our husbands and be all sort of glowy. 
but actually, you know, I, I've learned that I've learned that more actually in recent years being on my own. You know, you need to love and respect yourself for who you are and be totally happy to be on your own before I think you can actually let somebody else in. And I, I needed to find that place. As it happened, I didn't have a huge opportunity because, you know, only a year went by and then I was bang, I was, you know, getting married again. I can relate to wanting to kind of find your place and be happy on your own. I think I definitely felt that after my divorce. And I think that's why it took me, I think I was single for a good like four years before getting into a, a proper relationship again, which I mm. am in now. But also you mentioned obviously being front page of the Daily Mail. Was that something you considered when you were getting divorced? Did you think, no. oh, I'm in the public eye. What's the reaction going to be? I think, you know, one of the things my parents said was, was what will everybody think? You know, they are of that generation where, you know, what the neighbours think and what their friends and, you know, the wider community would think, actually would think of me. It was a kind of a disgraceful act so I guess that made me think a little bit about it I didn't realize that the media would be quite so judgmental and and quite so vitriolic I, I suppose at the time I was doing a show called Lizelle's Lifestyle and you know it all looked very lovely on the, the surface and you know I was you know making yogurt in my kitchen and you know sort of living the dream with two beautiful children and and you know a lovely life and of course life isn't really like that it's sort of for social media so you couldn't kind of share you, you were very much what the TV commissioners wanted to portray you as basically. And so I guess that gave a lot of ammunition for some of the female commentators, interestingly, always the female ones, um, to have a go. And uh, and they did. And they had a lovely time. Yeah. How did you cope with that? Because obviously it's such a difficult time when you're getting divorced anyway. And then obviously you had the situation with your parents and then you sent them the book and then they came yeah. around. But then the media as well. Did you avoid it? Did you read it? Uh, I think you always read it, don't you? You know, people say don't read the comments, but it's like kind of picking a scab. You you, you know, you just kind of have to go back there. And it's always the negative ones that resonate. You know, you can have a thousand really lovely comments and then the one that says, yeah, but actually I think you're a bit shit, really. You know, and that's the one that, that you take to bed with you. So it, it is hard. Yes, I did read everything. Um and, you know, not to say that I bear grudges, but I do remember. <laughs> uh, so, but it taught me a lot. You know, I think, you you know, life is about learning. I mean, it sounds really kind of trite and, and a bit blah to say that, but it is, you know, it you learn a lot and it taught me a lot. It actually, actually stood me in very good stead. And it's probably why I became much more private. You know, my, my youngest child, for example, has never been named, you know, he's, and, you know, if ever I do an interview, I say, oh, and what are the names of your children? I say, well, you know, once they're 18, they can make the choice and, and decide whether they want to be named and tell you or not. But I'm not going to put them out there. I, you know, my younger ones have never been on my Instagram until they got to the age of 18 and decided that they'd actually like to be because that's their privacy. And I think, am I right in saying that one of the Osborne children has never been on TV or in the media because I don't even know if it's he or she has chosen not to, you know, very famous siblings. But actually, you know, and I really respect that. And I think, you know, that the problem sometimes is, you know, when you start posting baby photographs and then, you know, moving on, is that individual then has no choice. It's out there in the public domain. You can never recapture things that are said or photographs particularly. They'll always be there. And I just didn't feel that that was my, my right to do that. I wanted to wait until they got older. So I think that was probably one of the biggest lessons that I, I took and, and still do. My youngest, I have to say, is extremely annoyed that he's not on Instagram. You know, he <laughs> says, you know, when are you going to feature me? And I say, well, you know, we'll wait until wait until you're 
of age and then you can you know it's up to you like mom my profile needs work exactly come on i'm doing all these tiktok videos and nobody is following me i think oh sweetheart never mind Uh, well (laughs) it's interesting i guess that reaction sounds quite normal like if you were in in the press and and it had a horrible time then you know becoming more private and I obviously haven't had my own TV show, so it's not quite the same. But, you know, when I've done things that have been more high profile, I remember when I was doing Magic Mike Live and, Mm -hmm. you know, there were lots of photographers around and doing lots of interviews. And it sort of scared me a little bit, that kind of, it was the press, but also like sometimes audience members, mm. like it felt quite invasive and like they wanted to know lots about me and, you know, they'd wait after the show and give you gifts, which is actually a lovely thing. But it strangely made me feel quite uncomfortable, whereas before I would have been like, yes, I want everyone to know my name and love me. Mm. And then I was like, oh, I feel I don't know how I feel about this. Um and actually, weirdly, writing books and also doing the podcast is quite nice because it's like a select audience mm-hmm. knows my name, mm-hmm. not necessarily, especially with books, not necessarily my face. Yeah. It's interesting in the public eye because everyone's always telling you that you, you know, to raise your profile, <laughs> you need to be on everything <laughs> and interviewing and everything and on the telly all the time. But then it comes with this side of it, which is quite invasive. There's definitely, you know, a, a flip side to the coin and, and it's a genie that you can't put back in the bottle. I think that's what you have to remember. You know, once it's out there, it's out there and you can't control it. You know, you have no idea what somebody's going to say or write, you know, whether it's true or not. So, you know, you, you, you do have to be aware. And actually, when I got married the second time, we moved to the countryside and I kept myself very private and we were living in a small village and I used my married name everywhere. You know, I was known as, you know, Patrick's wife and um, we, and it was quite traditional. So we we would go to be invited to dinner parties and I'd sit next to kind of, you know, crusty old colonels and they'd say, so, you know, what does your husband do? And I would tell them, you know, he's a photographer and whatever. And the next question was, and where are your children at school? And I'd have a conversation about that. And then it would be sort of, you know, um, you know, do you like gardening? And And, and nobody ever ever in probably about three years asked what I did. They just assumed that, you know, great, you know, I was a you know, wife and mother and uh, living in the countryside. And then one day I was in the village shop and a lady tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and she said, you're not, you know, Mrs. Whatever. And I said, I, I, yeah, I am. And she said, no, you're not. She said, you're Liz Earl. I saw you on QVC last night. <laughs> <laughs> and my cover was blown. <laughs> but actually, you know, I really liked not having, you know, to be Les Earl and not, you know, for the opening question to be, so how did you start your beauty company? And, you know, your heart sinks when you get that. And, and people are automatically judging you, perhaps, and making assumptions of, of who you are based on what you do, not, not because of literally who you are as the person. And also, <laughs> I think people must always be checking your skin condition, no? Because <laughs> because you're famous for a beauty company that makes skin products. I'd be if I had a spot, I'd be like, oh my gosh, no one can see me. Yeah, a lot of concealer. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean that. That I mean, I'm you know fortunate. I've genetically have good skin, and over the years, I've I've learned a few tricks. Uh, you know, to keep it. I'm determined to hang on to it uh, for as long as possible. But you know, without being 
too crazy stupid you know you can't obsess too much about it because it's a losing game so don't don't go there <laughs> it's funny the scan though like oh, i'm um i have a hearing aid and i lip read no you know, obviously write books about being deaf and people do when they meet me and they know that they sort of try to look at my ears to see my hearing aid sometimes, <laughs> but like surreptitiously. But is it really there? How yeah. Oh, Are gosh. you? How does she manage? Um, and yeah, sometimes I feel like, oh, right, I'll just show them and get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. But did you? I can't imagine you ever being like, right, take a good look at my face, <laughs> my skin, my pores. Get in there and then we can carry on the convo. Yeah. And, and, you know, writing about well-being as well, you know, kind of never allowed to be ill. You know, if I'm doing a live and I've got a frog in my throat or something or I'm a bit tired or I've, you know, had a heavy night the night before and I've got dark circles under my eyes, I think, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm going to be judged on that. Or someone (laughs) catching you eating a donut. Well, that wouldn't happen, obviously, Sam. (laughs) Well, no, what I like about your social media (laughs) is that you are quite honest of like, you can have nice treats as well. You don't have to... Well, it's 80-20. You know, that, that I try and live by that rule pretty much in everything I do. You know, 80% is is tries to be really good and, and positive and, you know, put stuff into my body that's going to build it and be helpful. But 20%, you know, let's cut ourselves some slack and, you know, not to say I never eat a donut, but it would only be if I really, really want to eat a donut, you know, not just because it happens to be there. I'm the other side of things. I'm like, oh, there's a donut there. I should probably eat it. But 20% of the time you don't. You step away. So that's great. Yeah. So it's fine. I'm having water now. It's fine. Healthy. So let's move on to your second marriage. So you were only single for a year. So were you looking for someone else or or did it sort of happen? A bit. I did a little bit of dating. I mean, this was before, you know, there was anything kind of online or anything like that. So you know, it was a bit sort of sparse and and thin on the ground. But, you know, I I kind of enjoyed-ish being on my own. But I think because all my friends were were young married, I I did feel a bit out of the loop. And I remember it was actually my producer of my TV show. I remember saying to her one day, you know, listen, you know, if you know anybody, you know, just, I I don't actually want to get married or anything, but, you know, just somebody I can go to the theatre with or sit and have supper, whatever. And she was like, no, can't think of anybody. And then about a week later, she rang me and she said, oh, my gosh, Liz, I have the absolute perfect man for you. And she'd just been to his 40th birthday party. And there'd been a string of, I think, very unsuitable young women there. And uh, and she just and she, she'd known him for like 20 years. I think he's godfather to one of their boys, knows him really well and said, I just think I think you should meet, you know, meet my friend Liz. And, you know, if if I have a ranger like a dinner party, they were living in Kew, you know, will you will you come? So he said yes. I said yes. Because I was doing breakfast telly, he thought he was meeting Anthea Turner, <laughs> uh, who happens to be a great friend of mine. So I, I, I was, was he her about disappointed or excited? <laughs> I was just a bit surprised, you know. <laughs> and I remember we sat next to each other at the table and it was when everybody was campaigning about GM food. And I'd just taken a petition to Downing Street with over a million signatures on it saying that we need clear labelling on food. We need choices as consumers. We need to know what we're buying. And he'd come back from Africa. He spends a lot of time in Kenya. And he saw, you know, GM as the the big white saviour that was going to, you know, eradicate hunger and poverty and, you know, crop issues. And he started talking about how marvellous it was. And I just said, let me tell you about the dark side. Let me tell you the downside here and why we need to be really careful. So I kind of laid into him in this way that I probably would not have normally done it, you know, because I was all fired up. It was very topical. And he just kind of got it. And we started 
chatting and I just remember thinking you're really interesting you know you you get me uh and you might not agree with me but you you get me and you're prepared to listen and I was living in Putney at the time he was living in Battersea so at the end of the evening I said oh you know I'll, I'll you know call a cab and he said oh that's fine I'll you know I'll, I'll drop you and so he he drove me home and uh I was living in this street of, of Edwardian houses and he was working as a, as a filmmaker at the time, a scriptwriter and a director. And he looked at me, he said, do you live in that house? And I said, yeah, why? He said, I made a film in the house next door because it's got this amazing Edwardian panelling. Does yours have Edwardian panelling? And I kind of <laughs> looked at him and there was that moment and I said, um, yeah, actually, actually it does. Would you, would, would you like to come and have a look? What a line. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so he did and that was it and he didn't leave basically and then six weeks later we were engaged and the following year we were married and then I got pregnant on honeymoon with our with our first child so it was very it was very quick it was it wow was yeah. I mean there's lots to delve into there but <laughs> does your house have Edwardian paneling has Mm-mm. to be the new do you want to come in for yeah. a coffee like yeah that's... do you see my etchings you know <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's a great line isn't it but you know listen and if anybody's out there wanting to get the foot in the door what a great line. You know, I, I've yeah. been into the house next door. You know, is yours the same? I'd love to see your conservatory. <laughs> <laughs> is that a euphemism? Yeah, always. <laughs> I love it. So six weeks later, you were engaged. Well, do you know, so I think it was because he he had history. You know, we hadn't just met in a bar my great friend, who is still one of my closest friends, you know, she had known him for 20 years. He was a known quantity. And I think there was that element of trust that kind of fast tracked our relationship. And also it's bizarre now thinking about it. But, you know, I was late 30s. He just turned 40, never been married. And I think both of us were thinking, gosh, you know, we ought to crack on. Time's ticking. And so for all those reasons, and, you know, we genuinely fell in love and have, had an amazing time. And so, you know, for those reasons, you know, we we progressed faster, I think, than perhaps we would have done otherwise. <laughs> when you got engaged, were you thinking about your previous marriage? Were you worried about marriage in any way? Had you been thinking that you wanted to get married again? No, I, I genuinely hadn't been thinking about it. I, I wasn't really worried about it. I think because I had two beautiful children I, and, you know, work was going well and, I, you know, I felt fulfilled in many areas. So I wasn't really conscious of it. I think for him, I remember that I think it was maybe on our second date and I said something about my children and he kind of did a double take and he said, what, you have children? And my friend obviously hadn't mentioned that little crucial nugget of information. It hadn't come up in conversation. And I said, yeah, I've, I've got two, you know, a boy and a girl. And he said, oh, OK, um, do you want any more? I said, well, not sure, really. I'm not, you know, if if I had more, that would be great. That would be a real joy. Uh, if not, then that's fine, too. And, you know, I could almost see him breathing a visible sigh of relief. And And actually, this is a conversation I've had with a few guys recently who are single in that, I think when women reach a certain age, whether it's conscious or subconscious, they start seeing guys as sperm donors, potential fathers of their children. And that creates such a pressure early on. You know, how real is this relationship? Is it because your biological clock is ticking and you're desperate, you know, to find a father figure? Is that a pressure? And and I said, you know, what about you? You know, would you like children or not? And he said, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. I haven't, you know, I'm... I've always kind of avoided the issue because I felt that that shouldn't be the overriding factor of why you why you get together with somebody. So 
There are a lot of reasons, I think, why other kind of the stars collided when they did. And then you were pregnant with your first child yeah. with him quite quickly. Yeah. yeah, on honeymoon. Yeah, yeah, Brella, who's now 22. It's interesting because when I met my partner now, I was very much like, oh, I don't know if I want children because I didn't have any children in my previous marriage. And, you know, I was very open about the fact that I might not want them at all and I maybe adopt and I don't know. And then obviously <laughs> things changed. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it is an interesting one because I remember, because I got divorced in my early 30s and I remember thinking, I don't have children. Do I want children? There is this ticking clock, you know, fertility. Mm. Do I want to freeze my eggs? And there's, mm. there is all of that like extra pressure on you from society, but also your ovaries ticking down yeah it's it's very real you know and I have these conversations with girlfriends of mine who are in their 30s you know should they be freezing their eggs and you know what what would life be like without children and you know there are those pressures you know I feel incredibly fortunate that for me you know it was it was not an issue in fact you know my last one I have five because we had two quite close together you know Brella who's 22 now and Kit who's 20 and then I had a surprise stroke shock. No, no, he was a wonderful, an unexpected blessing. Uh, my mother calls him my autumn leaf because I thought he was the menopause, you know. Oh, and, wow. Which was <laughs> just a little bit. I mean, you would have thought I would have known, wouldn't you, after four, that there'd be a little bit of a clue there. I was very busy at the time, which is my defense. We were selling the beauty company at the time. I was living on an aeroplane and caffeine and cocktails and stress. And, you know, not doing any of the things that you should, you know, I was, wasn't taking my omega-3s and my folic acid, I wasn't resting and doing all of that stuff. And, and being a much older mum, I was 38 when, when I had him. No, 48, what am I saying? 48, missing a decade. I thought, well, this is going to be a disaster, you know, because, it's, you know, you read all the statistics. And I remember going for a scan and, and talking to the, the doctor and, and saying, you know, what are the risks? And he said, well, you know, there are charts that, that can show the risk of abnormalities and you know what you might expect and and he looked at the chart and he said um oh he said actually you have no risk I saw that you know brilliant how come I have no risk you know I'm super old and he said yeah you're so old the charts don't work that far so you know <laughs> you're not on the chart therefore you know we can assume there's no risk I mean obviously he was joking but I, and I you know I had various scans and things which showed everything to be fine and and actually everything was completely fine and he is you know, was born incredibly healthy and is super bright and, and strong and all of those things, which I think just goes to show that, you know, the media love to portray risk. You know, you can get into kind of absolute risk and relative risk. It's really important to actually, you know, to look at the actual statistics and not scare yourself silly. Obviously, be sensible and, and you know, take care where you can. But if that doesn't happen, it doesn't have to be the end of everything. Yeah, I have anxiety and I'm very good at scaring myself by looking on the internet at things. <gasps> yeah, catastrophizing. You know, we do it so well, don't we? And, you know, I call it forward planning and just being being responsible. But actually, it's something that I need to learn not to do. I will always think, yeah, this is great. But, you know, what if, you know, surely this is going to happen? You know, it can't be this good. I need to be prepared for the really bad stuff to happen. Yeah, someone gave me advice, actually. I think it was one of my Instagram followers that you should only ever, if you're looking something up on the internet, only ever like click through twice and to reputable, like an NHS site and a, 
you know, a further NHS page, but never click through more than twice. And I think that is really good advice because you get down a hole of weird symptoms and you're like, it's I'm dying. Oh, you've got everything, haven't you? It's like, do you know that fantastic book, Jerome K. Jerome, Three Men in a Boat? I love that book so much. I mean, it's an ancient kind of Victorian comedy, but it starts with, I think it's Harris, the main character, and he he looks up his symptoms in a library because uh, he's not feeling great. And he works out he's got every single thing except housemaid's knee. And then he gets really kind of think, well, why haven't I got housemaid's knee? You know, I've got all these other things and I'm going to give my body to medical research. I'd be such an interesting specimen. And it's so true. You know, I had to look up something the other day and I convinced myself that, you know, I've got, I don't know, dengue fever or something. (laughs) Yeah. And then you're like, oh, you can't get that in the UK, but maybe. (laughs) Maybe it's the one, isn't there? Yes. (laughs) I'm the anomaly. There'll be studies written about me is always what I think. Um. I know you said you don't say the name of your youngest, but you didn't call him menopause, did you? Because you no. did think it was the menopause. No, and I hope he doesn't listen to this because he is very much wanted and loved. It was <laughs> it was just a surprise. You know, yeah. I, I honestly thought I was past it. And actually, I had done, uh, I think I'd had to do a well woman check for work or whatever. And they'd looked at my hormones in my blood, which is one reason, I mean, I now campaign on this actually for menopause, why they are so unreliable and you must not go by them. Um, and the doctor said, oh, well, you know, you're, you're post-fertility, you know, you don't need to worry about that on, anymore. So, you know, so I didn't. Um, and there you are. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. thought I was perimenopausal yeah. actually before I got pregnant. Also, I'd interviewed someone who became perimenopausal after their divorce and apparently it can happen due to stress Mm -hmm. and then she had all these tests and the doctors were like yeah you're going into the menopause and then so they were like you don't need to use protection or anything because you're Mm -hmm. and then she came out of it and got pregnant (gasps) so then I was like I'm menopausal yeah no hormones are, are tricky things and you know menopause can happen at a very early age you know 100 women will have a menopause in their 30s for example and actually, Asian women will have an average menopause age of 41, you know, whereas for Caucasian women, it's 51. So, you know, you, you mustn't dismiss symptoms early because our hormones will fluctuate and change, you know, really from 30s, certainly from 40s onwards. What fun. <laughs> but it's good. You, you, yeah, you know, you, but you can learn. You can tame the tiger. That's, that's a lot of what I do is giving hope to perimenopausal and menopausal women. Yeah, well, thank you for giving us hope. I'm going to stop Googling. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ding dong! It's the ad break. This podcast is sponsored by Penguin in the Room, an award-winning company that can manage your business's social media. They even manage our podcast, Instagram and Twitter. Just email info at penguinintheroom.com for a quote. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can by buying merchandise from our website, www.thedivorcesocial.com. Ding dong. So you had this kind of whirlwind romance. You got married again. Mm. And how long were you together before you got divorced for the second time? Again, 17 years. I mean, is there a pattern? I don't know. I, I, I've been That's told your number. That, you know, patterns, uh, you know, do repeat. And yeah, you know, it's it's not what I intended. Um, you don't get married to get divorced. And in fact, I, I was interviewing for my podcast, a brilliant psychologist called Lucy Beresford talking about relationships and she started to ask me about mine and I said oh you know I've had two failed marriages and all that. And she stopped me and she said why do you say they failed and I said well because they ended in divorce you know I, I didn't set out to get divorced I took my vows very seriously till death do us part and all of that and it didn't work and, and it failed and she said no said you were married for 17 years that you know you produced amazing children you had good times in that and when you say till death do us part we assume it's the death of a person but it could equally easily be the death of a relationship your relationship died and that's what you have lost and that's what you're grieving and moving on from but that doesn't mean the whole thing was a failure and for me at that time I found that incredibly helpful to think yes the relationship died and, you know, we, we, you know, do still care about each other and co-parent and all of that. Um, and that was the death, not the actual physical death of a person. I think that's so useful. And I think, yeah, this idea of failure around divorce and, and the shame and the guilt of it can be so intense. And, you know, just I think no matter how long you were married, you still had a marriage. So you yes. still succeeded at getting there. Yes. And you still had a relationship and there was love there at some point. Mm. Um, sure. And yeah, yeah, this this failure is, you know, I've failed some of my houseplants because I've let them die. But that's that's different. <laughs> I didn't yes. water them. But I, you know, I watered my marriage and the other person watered the marriage and eventually yes. it just dried up. interesting, I think, doing your job because, you, you know, you're obviously talking about divorce the whole time and I guess you do find this, that it's always tinged with a sense of shame, possibly regret, possibly anger, possibly bitterness, you know, because it is seen as, as something that has failed, that didn't go as you had planned it, no matter which way you look at it, you know, so trying to take the positives of that is is a hard thing, isn't it? Yeah. And especially immediately when you feel like mm. everything's crumbling around you because this life that you've built with this other person is, you know, not going that way anymore. I think mm. it's it's really hard to see. I remember if I ever hear clips at the beginning of, of this podcast from series one, you know, I say things like I can't ever imagine being in love again or 
really? or, or finding someone or even being like, okay, I think I'm learning to be okay on my own during series one, but I'm definitely not there yet. I did have a sexual explosion, which was great. Good for you. Yeah. So it, but it's interesting, <laughs> but now I, I can yeah. say like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, yeah. I'm in you, love you, and I love amazing. myself. Yeah. And, you know, that is the absolute key. You know, the the thing that I learned post-divorce the second time, much more so than the first time, I guess I was older, wiser, had been interviewing lots of psychologists and, you know, writing about mental health and all of those things. I was much more awake and alive to all of this is the realization that you absolutely need to be fundamentally happy with yourself on your own that you don't need somebody else to complete you. You are not an incomplete being because you are not married or even with somebody. And partly because it was during lockdown, but, you know, partly because I needed that time out. I was on my own, completely on my own for, you know, the best part of three years. Plus there was time before that during the divorce when we were separated and we obviously not, you know, not living together or, you know, sharing very much space. So there was a long time that I felt that I was in the wilderness and I really tried to use that time to feel content and thinking, well, if this is it, then this is great. I've got amazing friends, fabulous family, really great children, lovely work colleagues. You know, life is full and I need to get to know myself. And I remember I booked a couple of theatre tickets and I normally will ring people and say, you know, come with me. I've got a spare ticket. And I'd left it really last minute and I had no one to go with. And I, had, I was looking at these two tickets. It was at the National for something I really wanted to see. I thought, am I going to go on my own? I've never been to the theatre on my own. And everyone's going to look at me and I'm going to be really sad and awkward. I thought, no, actually, I'm going to go and I'm going to own it. And I, I booked what I would normally do with a friend. I booked a pre-theatre supper and a little bistro around the corner. And I sat table for one, please. Thank you. Is anyone else joining you? No, it's just me. Thank you very much. I have the menu. And yes, I will have a glass of wine. Uh, went, sat on my own, had the choice of two seats, you know, so bring it on, you know, tall guy in front of me, not an issue, sat in the other seat. In the bar, in the interval, bought myself a drink, thought about the first act, what I thought about it, read the rest of the programme, watched the second act, uh, went home and thought, I have had a really nice evening with myself. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did not, didn't have to talk to anybody annoying, listen to anybody else's point of view, you know, which I totally disagreed with. And since then, I have done it again many times deliberately, not just because I can't get anyone to go with me, but because I actually fancy a date with myself. Yeah, I love that. I interviewed um, Francesca, who wrote a book called Alonement, and she talks about, mm. you know, being alone with yourself. And I went on holiday on my own after my Ooh. divorce. Yeah, I haven't done that yet. It was amazing. I was so scared. but. Sure. The joy of going out to dinner and not having to sit with someone else or like talk about where, like what sort of restaurant you're going to go to because they fancy Chinese and you want Italian. Mm -hmm. You know, I loved it. And I still, I go for meals on my own. If I'm ever like in London in between meetings, nice. I'm like, oh, I'm going to take myself for a fancy lunch. And I love oh. it. <laughs> it's really empowering. And, you know, you, you do, it sounds a bit trite, but you do have to love yourself, I think, to be loved by others and be completely happy and secure and settled. And I've got several girlfriends now, actually, who are on their own, some divorced, some have never married. And I would say, uh, for the most part, they are the happiest of my girlfriends. You know, they know who they are, super confident, wide range of friends, do exactly as they please, when they please. 
and you know some are dating some are not and but just you know kind of living their way and they've been really inspiring and encouraging to to realize that actually you don't need that other person to complete you if it comes along and it's great then amazing but it's not a necessity yeah definitely and I think there's even been studies haven't there that single people are happier than married (laughs) people but I found that in my relationship now I still really value my alone time and I don't Mm. feel that need because it was always about the plus one especially when you get invited to industry events and stuff who are you going to bring as your plus Mm. one and quite often now I just go on my own because I can do my own thing and I don't have to drag my poor partner along to an event that they're probably not that interested in but they want to support me (laughs) I just sort of go along for a couple of hours have a nice chat and then go don't feel guilty I think, you know, we we need to get to a stage where we know ourselves better. You know, as I say, you know, I, I connect on my community, particularly with midlife women, and I get a lot of feedback. And this is something that I experienced myself, particularly kind of in my 40s, I guess, and 50s, that I kind of lost myself. I, I was something to somebody else, but not to myself. I was somebody's mother, somebody's wife, somebody's daughter, somebody's boss, somebody's colleague, you know, and, and but who was I in all of that? You know, that, that there was so much time needed for other people, you know, rightly so, to, to tick all those boxes and to do all that stuff. But I lost my way and I didn't really know who me, you know, Liz Earl or Mrs. Whoever, you know, and it doesn't help having more than one name, you know, who am I really? It's a, it, it was a process of discovery and putting a bit of time in actually and not feeling the pressure to be anything other than me fundamentally authentically me yeah I love that so other than going to the theater I'm just thinking for anyone who's trying to listen and they're in this process of I want to get back to me you know I'm single now and um, I'm not necessarily looking for anything was there anything you did Going to the theatre on your own is a good one or going for a meal on your own. But is there anything you did after either divorce um, that you found particularly useful in kind of helping that process? Yeah, I, I became more adventurous, actually. I decided to do things that I would perhaps not otherwise have considered, maybe because there was nobody there to judge me <laughs> or to pull me down or go, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. You know, that's really stupid. You know, just little, even things said in jest actually can stick and can be quite harmful. Mm. So I took up wild swimming. So, you know, and I go and sit and I actually dug a pond in the bottom of my garden now that I can go and sit in, you know, which before I, I would have been a bit nervous to do because, you know, I might have got laughed at or um, somebody might go, I can't believe you're doing that. You know, that's just so daft. And I felt I love it. I mean, it's my addiction. And if I can't go and sit in my pond, I have a really cold shower every morning. Uh, at least 60 seconds and the endorphin rush that you get the dopamine you know it's been clinically proven you know doctors really before reaching for their antidepressants the SSRIs should be you know doing a bit of social prescribing with a bit of cold water therapy Um, obviously be a bit careful if you've got you know blood pressure issues but you know there's lots of really good safe ways to do it and so I think yeah being being a little bit more adventurous doing stuff that I would not perhaps normally have done you know going to football matches with my boys because it was always seen as a kind of a boy thing I thought well actually I'm going to go too um and just spending a bit more time I guess watching things you know I mean having control of the tv remote's a great joy isn't it really 
really start oh, to yeah. indulge your guilty pleasures. <laughs> I think that's one thing I've carried forward into my life with anyone I will ever be with is that I will always be in control of the mm -hmm. TV remote now. So that's just a given. That's like first date. I need to break it to them. Yeah, this is a non-negotiable. It's a line in the sand, that one. Yeah, that's it. Um, also, I love that you said just if I can't go and sit in my pond, because I'm your pond is probably beautiful. I think uh, you've I've seen it on your Instagram. But it's not I, a very um, big pond. It's it's a like it's a very large deep puddle, to be honest. But I am very imagining you called a pond <laughs> in like a kind of normal in a pond. <laughs> no, in a normal pond with like lily pads and like some no, frog no, spawn. no. You know, you have to be quite quite careful with it. I've, I have lots of water fleas. Water fleas are my friends. Oh. You can buy them on Amazon. And they turn up in a bag and you release them into the water and they munch up all the bad stuff in your pond and they leave the water sparkling clear. They're kind of microscopic. You can't really see them. And they are nature's natural, I don't know, biodigesters. And then they're fabulous things. Water <laughs> and I love it. Water fleas, Daphnia. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. never a, a place I thought we'd get to during this mm. conversation, but I'm glad we have. <laughs> um, I think that should be like the quote for your episode. <laughs> Get me some water fleas. Get me some water fleas. I get flea bag. <laughs> water fleas. <laughs> um, so now looking back at those two divorces and, you know, living now, are you dating? Are you are you happy to talk about that? Are you seeing someone? Are you happy on your own? Well, it's very new. I have been seeing someone. I, you know, I've I have dated a bit um and met some really lovely people you know been introduced through friends mostly actually that's kind of the old-fashioned way somebody saying oh you know you know come and meet this person or you know one person actually was was deliberate um you know I, I really think you get on with my friend you know I'm going to set you up but for the most part it's sort of you know like let's we're going to the pub for a drink do you want to join us and by the way there's a really hot guy you know you might like <laughs> but uh yeah it's it's new but I am seeing somebody that I, I do quite like but by the time this podcast goes out Sam I don't know <laughs> we'll see <laughs> we'll you see. might be married um, <laughs> that is not happening okay no is, you're not getting good, married a, now no, a girlfriend of mine did say to me Liz if you ever say to me that you're getting married again I am going to slap you really hard and I said <laughs> you have my full permission okay I don't know so you know I don't know I kind of think what's the point for me I was thrilled to get married at that stage in my life and for my children you know, I felt that was important. Do I feel that now? Do I need to be missed as somebody? I don't know. I don't know. Ask ask me when I've been slapped and uh, we'll <laughs> see. <laughs> but I, I can't imagine myself ever getting married again. And why? I quite like to be engaged. You know, I quite like to have, you know, not just a nice ring, but kind of a commitment and to be able to say, I don't really like the word partner. I guess because I've been in business a long time and for me, business partners are kind of something else. I, you know, I think, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend is, is, seems quite romantic, slightly old fashioned. Then if you want to escalate that so that you are, you know, you've obviously been dating somebody for a long time and, and you're very much together and you're committed, that then seems a bit feeble. So, you know, to be able to say, oh, my fiance, but then to actually not to have to do the deed, you know, do you think that, that, that could work? I like that. So you get the ring and the commitment, but you don't yeah. have to sign any forms. No, exactly. Because, you know, what I've learned is it's very, very easy to get married. It's very, very, very hard to get unmarried. Yes. And is, that, and is that why you'd avoid it again? I think so. Maybe in the back of my head, uh, but 
I think more fundamentally, I'm kind of at a stage where I'm thinking, why? You know, why Why would I put that pressure on myself and the other person? I don't know. I mean, I'm not in that kind of relationship where it's become, you know, even a possibility. So maybe I can come back again and talk another time. Yeah, in another 17 years. <laughs> when I'm 77, gosh. Yeah, love it. Thinking about age, just I do find it quite strange that I got married for the second time or when I got married. This was not the reason I got married, but one of the, the, the issues or not issues, but one of the thoughts in my head was I'm getting on a bit. And I was 38, I think, 36. 30, yeah, something like that. Now I'm 60 and I feel better, stronger, fitter dare I say, even slightly hotter than I was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, because I've sorted my stuff out, you know, and I'm and I do more, I'm much more active. And I'm, um, you know, physically in in better shape and mentally and emotionally in, in better shape. And I do not feel in any way past it. In fact, I literally feel halfway through, I'm, I fully intend to make 120, barring the proverbial bus. But yeah, great. Also, I'm 36 now. So I'm looking forward to being 60 and feeling fitter than ever. So, Well, I'm envious, Sam, because you can do all the stuff that I wish I had done from my 30s onwards. You know, I'm, I had to play catch up and it's, it's quite hardball when you're in your 50s and, and you're trying to make amends for a lot of all the, the bad habits and reframe your daily routine. You know, it takes a lot longer. So if you can get those habits going now, I mean, you'll People like Dave Asprey, you know, biohacking, they're, they're pitching for 180. So, you know, you go, girl, for that one. So do you think getting divorced is a good time to <laughs> do all this stuff? It's a time, isn't it? It's it's a, a marker, a milestone that makes you reframe lots of things, how you look at lots of things. And I guess food is one of them because maybe you're just cooking for one. You know, maybe you, you have total yeah. control over what goes into your fridge and also what gets eaten, you know, what comes out of your fridge. You know, I used to buy all sorts of stuff and go into the fridge and it was gone. And now, you know, the joy is that for the most part, unless my kids are home, you know, it's still there um, at the end of the day. So I think it is time and it's time to invest, to decide that you are worth it and that it doesn't always have to be like this. And it's small changes. You know, it's not... I'm suddenly going to, you know, do a spin class every morning and become, you know, macrobiotic. It's not about that. It's actually deciding that you are genuinely worth trying to have that 60 second cold shower and that 10 minutes of meditation or mindfulness and that small glass of kefir. And the great thing is, is that when you start making these small changes, they all add up to a massive difference. And the more you do, the more you want to do. And that for me has been the key. Love that. I do love a meditation. I do do that. I like the things where I lie down and do things. Those are my ideal things. Pelvic um, floor, that's another good one. You can do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you have a new book. <gasps> this is super exciting. Please I, tell me. Well, I think, I think you're the first person I've told, actually. So it, I've been writing it for the last couple of years. It's called A Better Second Half. And it is really literally everything I've learned about how to have a better second half. I feel that midlife women particularly are not listened to. We become invisible. Society doesn't value us. It, you know, we, we feel cast aside. We're replaced by younger models wherever we look at them, whether they're in relationships or on social media or on our TV screens. Our opinions are invalidated and we our hormones crumble and conspire against us. And we need to push back and reclaim who we are. And this is 
it's kind of a manifesto. So the book is called A Better Second Half. Because, yeah, it's on pre-order. It won't come out until next April. But yeah, I'm Amazing. super excited. Yeah. Let's pre-order it. <laughs> Woo! Um, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you online and follow you? I'm Lizelle Wellbeing. Super easy. There's our well-being. So on Instagram, on you know, online, that's the website, etc. I'm personally, I'm on Lizelle Me. Uh, you get a lot of cat pictures, um, kefir, obviously, a bit of pond, you know. But yeah, Lizelle Me or Lizelle Wellbeing. It's great. I enjoy it all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Oh, hi. Thank you for listening to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines. Please leave us a review. Please, please. Um, It would be super nice. They're lovely to read. They keep me cheery and happy and keep me going. Uh, But also it affects our listing in the podcast charts, uh, which are very important because that's how more people find the podcast. And I'd love to help more people get through those really tough heartbreak and divorce times. And they're more likely to find us if we're higher up on the charts. So if you'd like to leave a review, I'd love you forever. You can leave them on iTunes is the big one or most podcast platforms do them as well. I'll take all the reviews you've got to give. You can also uh, get in contact on Twitter and Instagram at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. We have a website, thedivorcesocial.com and we have a Patreon account, which means that you 
can support the podcast for as little as £2 a month. And it helps me with all the admin costs. It also means you have access to our 90 style divorce and heartbreak chat room. And there's lots of exclusives on there, little bits of audio that you don't get in the main podcast and some giveaways as well. So I'd love to see you over on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Samantha Baines. And please leave a review. Did I say that already? Please leave a review. Love you forever.